Ladies and gentlemen, today on the Rise Together podcast, we have David Dozier with us. And uh, David is an awesome guest in that he is the author of The California Killing Field and an internationally recognized expert and speaker on mass communication, public relations, and a communications management expert. He is Professor Emeritus at the School of Journalism and Media Studies at San Diego State University and the co-author of over 100 books, book chapters, articles, and scholarly papers, and his works have been cited by more than 4,000 humans over time. He received his doctorate in communications from Stanford University, and he is here today to talk to us about all the things that are happening inside of the news world that we live inside of, specifically, what the heck's going on with fake news. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Dozier to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. I appreciate you being here. It's, I mean, we're living in such crazy times. As much as I gave just a little bit of an overview of who you are, that's a little high level. I'm wondering if you might, in your own words, tell listeners how you think of yourself and the work that you do. Well, I see myself now that I'm retired as having the opportunity to step back and look at the training of journalists, which I did for almost 40 years, as well as training public relations practitioners, also part of that 40-year package. Prior to that, I worked uh, on a student newspaper at UC Berkeley and also for a weekly newspaper for several years. So I sort of had a chance to look at it from the public relations side, the journalism side, uh, looking at it as an educator, as well as, uh, as a journalist and a, a PR practitioner. And so um, I think that gives me an opportunity to kind of look at it uh, from a number of different perspectives and uh, I think maybe provide some insights as to how people can navigate this much more cluttered uh, environment, news environment that everybody finds themselves in. Well, I think any of us as humans are consumers of information and disinformation as a part of that has become just something that happens in our every single day world, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. How did the issue of disinformation become a focus of your work? Well, in, in my novel, The California Killing Field, I do a deep dive on uh, fake news and disinformation campaigns and how you can bundle that together to manipulate public opinion. My interest, uh, frankly, has been spurred by a lot of the current political dialogue and we're seeing a lot of information uh, that's being passed about as if it were true. And the difficulty for the average consumer is that we all suffer from what's information bias. I tend to be a Bernie Sanders Democrat, you know, maybe a little bit to the left of Bernie on some issues, a little bit to the right on some other issues. Um, and so I'm looking at the world through that particular prism, and that's called confirmation bias. So I read the L.A. Times and the Washington Post and the New York Times, which, you know, 
left of center publications, at least in terms of their editorial policy. But I also subscribe and read the Wall Street Journal, which is very conservative, and Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian publication, which gives you a, a still different perspective on what's going on in the world. And I, here's here's my my basic take on it. When you live in a democracy, when you're a citizen in a democracy, it's work. You got to step up to the plate. If we lived in North Korea and we had no choice and we didn't have to make decisions, then it doesn't matter whether it's fake news or real news. It doesn't matter because our opinions wouldn't matter. In our country, it, our opinions do matter. They drive our voting decisions um, and those voting decisions influence uh, public policy. And so for all of those reasons, we have to pay careful attention to what we take to be true and what we take to be false. And it's a lot easier to agree uh, with facts, in quote marks, uh, facts that coincide with what you already believe. Much more difficult to internalize facts that run counter to the way you look at the world. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now with um, uh, the charges of uh, voter fraud and large numbers of Americans who believe that there was massive voter fraud in the last presidential election, even though the attorney general said he couldn't find any uh, any evidence of that that would make any difference uh, to the overall outcome. Well, it's interesting. I just recently watched and recommend to anyone listening uh, a documentary called The Social Dilemma, which gives a little bit of insight into how social media actually doubles down on some of the confirmation bias that we may already find ourselves inside of because of it feeding things that just reinforce the things that we already believe instead of introducing a different side of an issue for us to even contemplate. And so I think part of why we find ourselves as a divided nation as we do is that social media has become so prevalent and the mechanics in the background of these social media devices actually perpetuate the things that we already believe in a way that just create even more division and really make it hard to create a bridge between what we might believe as individuals and what somebody on the other side of a, an issue may believe on their side because of their confirmation bias being fed by the things that they're seeing. Are you seeing that in the work that you're diving into? Yes, uh, and, and that's an excellent documentary. I, I second your recommendation. I think everybody that watches it will have a clearer understanding of how those algorithms work. And as they're watching that, think about the idea of, of fake news and confirmation bias, because that's what the algorithm is attempting to do. And to uh, also keep you agitated. Uh, the more agitated you are, the more time you spend, more, more eyeball time you devote to that particular content. And uh, these uh, social media platforms uh, make their money by selling advertising to and so, uh, you know, more eyeballs by any means necessary. And unfortunately, about 20% of Americans get their news from social media. And that's like saying, well, I get my news from a piece of paper. There's all kinds of information on social media. Some of it is posts to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, um, uh, both, both of them, um, one conservative, one liberal in terms of their editorial policies, but their news pages are remarkably similar in terms of providing information. And as we look at uh, th that kind of factuation, we're able to uh, understand the world and, uh, from a better perspective. On the other hand, if it's fake news, and, and uh, basically fake news is either 
misinformation or disinformation, the distinction being, did you, in, did you intend to lie or are you just stating something that's not true in good faith? Uh, either way, though, it's, it's not true. And the challenge, of course, on social media is a lot of the um, traditional gatekeepers that manage the flow of news uh, in the old days uh, aren't running the show anymore. We all get to be uh, publishers. Our you know, Facebook and Twitter allow us to expand on whatever thoughts are going through our minds and the algorithms hook us up with other people. And the crazier it is, the more connections you'll have to other people that feel exactly the same way. And, and then you, you start sliding down into the QAnon well, where it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like an LSD trip. It's just sort of strange. You know, you got Hillary Clinton uh, working with Satanists, and they're basically cannibalizing small children's and engaging in uh, sex trafficking. I'm not, not a big fan of Hillary and Bill Clinton. Uh, I'm from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But I think on their worst days, they've never, you know, cannibalized anybody. And I don't believe they're Satanists. Um, but I think if all you're talking to are other people that feel exactly the same way, and they're sharing information that reconfirms that, that confirmation bias, um, it's very easy to get into a, a kind of a, a Jonestown situation where everybody drinks the Kool-Aid uh, and you wonder how could, you know, how could something like this happen? Well, it's, uh, it's the power of, uh, of groupthink. And it's, it, as we, we all know from social psychological studies, those are very, very powerful mechanisms of shaping how we look at the world. Yeah. I mean, I know in my family, and I'm sure in a lot of people's families who are listening right now, there are people in one side of the family that watch a certain news service and on the other side of the family, they watch a different news service and maybe they believe, hey, I'd never watch the thing that you watch and, and vice versa. But it almost feels as though we're living in two totally different realities because right. the kind of messaging and the kind of stories that are being told on one station versus another feels so different and, and in some ways disconnected from the other how in this vast sea of information does someone filter through what of what someone is watching on one channel is actually true or not, and what of what someone is watching on another channel is true or not to actually get to something that is closer to truth and not right. the bias that may be reflected in the station that they're watching. Right. Um, well, I think that part of that is what I call triangulation. You just listen to people that you don't agree with um, and media sources that you don't agree with. I don't agree with the editorial policies of the Wall Street Journal on, on probably most issues, um, but I find the reporting top notch. Uh, I don't agree with Reason Magazine in every respect. I, as a journalist, I'm kind of a libertarian when it comes to free speech issues. Um, but in other regards, uh, I, I, I don't buy the libertarian perspective. But I enjoy listening to or reading information that has been filtered through that particular lens so I can go, oh, that's another way of looking at it. And I'm able to, um, and it's uncomfortable, by the way, I'm, you know, I went to Berkeley in the 60s, you know, I'm kind of old guard, you know, uh, uh, retrograde sort of hippie radical in, in some respects, um, uh, even though I'm a homeowner and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, these days. Uh, so it's very hard for me to admit I'm wrong about anything. Uh, and, but I am. And I find that by paying attention to uh, sources like the Wall Street Journal and Reason Magazine, that, that I, I just think about things from a different perspective and find myself shifting on some issues. If it's not necessarily agreeing with people, understanding where they're coming from, 
I grew up in a rural area of California. It was a logging town. It's a sawmill that shut down. It's a lot of poverty. And so when I go back to visit family, I get exposed to folks that are very loyal supporters of uh, President Trump. Where I live, there aren't that many, but you don't run into them in the course of everyday conversations. But where I grew up, I did. And you can listen with greater empathy if you at least understand some of where they're coming from. And I think you hit the nail on the head. If your worldview is totally shaped by watching Fox News on the one hand or MSNBC on the other, you're going to come up with a worldview so discordant that it's going to be impossible for folks uh, who are MSNBC junkies, Rachel Maddow fans, uh, talking to the folks that watch ex- uh, Fox News exclusively. And so it's so that- interesting you say that because I like I am a news junkie and I have been. Right. A person who just has loved the news for so long. I got an opportunity recently on an airplane to sit next to Dan Rather. It was like the pinnacle. I was such an yeah. amazing thing because I've just respected reporting for my entire life. I thought I'd be a broadcast journalist when I was growing up. And I found myself maybe a year ago recognizing that the news that I was consuming regularly was not actually serving me getting closer to any of the people who had a differing opinion. And I had to pull myself back. And I started actually doing a little bit more of, all right, if I'm going to open up MSNBC, I'm also going to open up Fox News. If I'm going to open up CNN, I'm also going to open up, you know, whatever it might be, just so I could see how the headlines, the stories, the reporting were being reported from both sides. I may not agree with what both sides were necessarily saying, but I was I was trying again. I think empathy is like the most important word of anything you just said, because I wanted to try and be able to have a conversation with my mom and dad, with the people that I grew up with in my hometown, where there is just a completely different worldview and a different news source and a different sense of uh, whether it's optimism or pet- pessimism or hope or, 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 or feeling like, man, there's uh, you know the end of the world just right around the corner. At least by being able to be a little bit more connected to the kind of stories that they may themselves be consuming, I could engage in a conversation that was at least starting with just a tiny right. bit of empathy, even if I didn't agree with it. But it right. just, it, I don't know, it changed. I have not been the hyper consumer of news that I previously was because I actually found that even in consuming something that maybe was more aligned with my worldview, it wasn't necessarily helping me as much as it was making me feel like maybe I was reinforcing things I already believed instead of right. keeping myself a little more open to uh, the recognition of the bias that existed in what I was watching in the first place. It's something I think everybody has to watch out for. Yeah, that that's the challenge. And I think that's also the challenge if you become very dependent on social media, those algorithms that we were talking about earlier. It just simply becomes too easy to go down the rabbit hole and be in the echo chamber and you keep reinforcing each other. And once a uh, a factoid, which is just... Uh, an opinion that's been repeated often enough that we begin to treat it as a fact. So you got a factoid buried down in that rabbit hole with all your social media friends, and um, it goes unchallenged. As a, as a result, uh, you can find yourself in some very, very bizarre conversations with people who treat as fact things that in your belief system aren't facts at all, aren't even close to facts. Um, they're just misguided opinions. And of course, your friends can that are down the rabbit hole can say the same thing about you. So uh, what you're talking about, that ability to be empathic and the ability to ask questions, not to uh, use that as ammunition for the rebuttal, 
but to listen to people to try to understand where they're coming from. And that's a real challenge, especially if you be opinionated, especially if you, you know, follow politics closely and are very passionate about certain policies. Um, it's hard to do that, but you're not going to learn anything if you don't listen empathically to what other people are saying. And once you understand where people are coming from, it's harder to demonize them. It's harder to treat them as, you know, all those people are just uh, cognitively challenged or morally deficient. In their worldview, in, their, in that uh, world that they've constructed for themselves, um, what they're doing makes sense. It seems moral. It seems fair. The things they're afraid of seem like legitimate fears to them, even though they may not be legitimate fears to me. I live uh, the Mexican border. My son-in-law is Mexican-American. They don't worry. Hordes of Mexicans coming across the border, you know, rape and pillage. It's just not a concern of mine. That said, a lot of people who, back in my hometown, who might be worried about that, who feel, feel threatened about coming in to take their jobs and take advantage of our social welfare system, and all of those are concerns that they have. But unless you can respect that, those concerns, at least of discussion, um, you're not going to get anywhere. You really do need to, uh, I, I've, to moderate focus groups. I had a small consulting business and a focus group is basically a method of trying to get people to talk. And as a moderator, your job is to keep burrowing in and digging in. As people say interesting things, you do follow-ups. And so for me, the easiest way to be a good listener to pretend I'm moderating a focus group. And this person has something important to say. I don't understand it. And I need to invest the intellectual energy to make sure that I truly understand where they're coming from. We can have some great conversations after we've established that capacity of understanding the other person's point of view, even when we don't agree with it. Yeah. I recently listened to a fascinating, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight part podcast series called Rabbit Hole. It was done actually by the New York Times, but it followed someone who had started with pretty progressive leftist views, found themselves through the YouTube algorithm, having videos recommended because of a couple of things that he'd inevitably ended up searching, leading him into every single thing that he was seeing. Now being of another version of reality inside of a super right, conservative, super, super conservative right uh, worldview. And it ended up leading into a conversation about QAnon and everything else. But again, I think we as consumers were not really aware of the me mechanisms that exist that if we were to click on a single thing, may all of a sudden change what ends up being fed to us inside of YouTube or Facebook or whatever it might mean in a way that against our even conscious interest in following that rabbit hole, lead us down something that may upend a thing that we think or may now have us believing certain things because of what we're believing to be real news instead of what may be in fact a, a, a brand of fake news. I'm curious because you've obviously been a long time professor in journalism, you've worked inside of public relations. I, I, what is the biggest fear that you have regarding this proliferation of fake news? I mean, I, I have my concerns on the technology that helps mm -hmm. proliferate the things that once you get inside the echo chamber, you can't get out of the echo chamber. Um, but what's your biggest concern about the proliferation generally? 
Well, I do share your concerns with the technology algorithms that uh, put us all down rabbit holes, often against our will. My bigger concern is the um, social media literacy and general media literacy of the population. Now, this is going to sound like an educator basically putting in a plug for education. So take it with a grain of salt. But I strongly believe that every university ought to have as a general education requirement a course in social media. And in fact, I think it belongs at the secondary level in high schools. I think high school students need to learn social work. Uh, I'd have the social dilemma as a part of the uh, curriculum as one of the things you watch uh, when you're not zooming to class. Uh, and, and so I think that's key. Uh, I think people need to develop some sophistication. It goes back to my remark about being a citizen of North Korea, you know. Uh, if you don't want to cut anything and you don't want to take responsibilities as a citizen uh, seriously, uh, defect in North Korea, you won't have to worry about anything. It'll be served up for you. In a democracy, we have a responsibility to figure out what's true to the best of our ability to do so. And there's tools to do that. Uh, and I think that every citizen ought to be empowered with those tools. Uh, and uh, I think that if we had those tools, um, um, I trust Americans to figure stuff out for themselves if you give them the right tools. I think most Americans want to know what's going on. And I think most Americans would be interested in being able to separate fake news from stuff that they can trust. And there's some tools that to do that, the opportunity for these social media giants to create tools to counter those influences. If you think it's true, check it out. Um, go on uh, your search engine and take a look at uh, different sites that'll tell you, you know, whether something is true or not. And you might think that some of those are politically biased. Well, then pick one that, that, that you don't think is politically biased. For instance, the Washington Post has a fact checker, uh, and they've been fact checking President Trump since before his inauguration. And I find it interesting, but somebody who watches a lot of Fox News might not trust them. But there are others out there that are much more neutral. And those are good places and see whether, was well, that really true? It might ring yeah. true because it fits your confirmation bias. But, you know, you ought to develop a healthy skeptic of pretty much everything you read in the news or things, especially stuff that you view in the news. Um, because so much of that is driven by video. It's uh, a lot of the content is driven by what's the picture look like. And you get a rather distorted Im impression of what's important by, by watching either the cable networks, the uh, broadcast networks, or stuff that you can get on YouTube. Um, and the written, maybe because I came out of print journalism, I find the written word uh, much to dissect, to critically because I can stop and pause and think about it and I can do a Google search uh, to see it. Well, wait a minute. Is that, how does that fit into this other thing? I thought I knew, but maybe I don't. And I think all of those things develop a news consumption based on your own curiosity and people meant to believe different facts are true, but I think it, we should give it a critical look and use the tools that are available to us um, at, a, at our fingertips and especially yeah. when it's uh, comfortable. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because I have been on the hunt myself for sources that will challenge the fact-checking on both sides. If I find a site that's only fact-checking one side or only fact-checking another side, I just assume that there's some bias in the fact-checking. <laughs> so right. if I can 
in in like NPR for me feels like you know a pretty neutral source for news. And there have been some resources inside of NPR that have helped fact check Rachel Maddow as much as Tucker Carlson. And I uh-huh. I appreciate that right. because I don't want to live inside of a world where my confirmation bias is confirmed by the source that I like to listen to. And I believe that that person only, you know, says things that are 100% true without any kind of color. No, no, no. I'd like for someone to say, well, they're representing some of their own bias and reporting in this way or choosing these facts to support this storytelling. And that way it helps neutralize a little bit of what inevitably ends up being spinner bias on both sides. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, fake news has become a weapon of sorts inside yes. of today's media climate. And I'm curious from your perspective, why you believe it has become such an effective tool that both sides use to try and have their desired outcomes show up by using <laughs> news or fake news uh, as a catalyst for decision making or voting or fear mongering, whatever it might end up being. Well, that that's a great question. And I I'm disturbed whether it's, you know, Democrats or Republicans weaponizing fake news to achieve short-term political ends because in the long run, it's undermining democracy. Basically, the citizen is the corner's democracy. It's an old slogan from but it's still true today. And to go for short-term gains uh, by uh, weaponizing information, I, I'm because I've donated to a couple of political things. I'm always getting emails with uh, the latest crisis and uh, Republicans are going to take this away from them. And it's either a total catastrophe or enormous victory. And it's all fake stuff. You get into it and it's just an appeal. Can you give us another $50, you know, so we can continue like this, this uh, dragon that's threatening the, the castle. And it's unfortunate because what it does is that it makes us all very jaded. And after a while, we just believe much of anything. And that's unfortunate because we need information uh, to make informed decisions. And so I, I, I do think that uh, it's unfortunate that uh, politicians, uh, in, in, in the interest of short-term gains, are eroding something that's fundamental to our democracy. Yeah. We've talked about social media Obviously, it's a monster in and of itself, but I'm curious if you think that there is responsibility that sits with social media giants like Facebook or Twitter and a role that they ought to be playing in moderating or monitoring things that just are inherently fake or, or, or being used intentionally to, in the means of disinformation, lead people down a bad path. Is, is there a role that government ought to hold them accountable to, that their leaders ought to hold themselves accountable to, to help stem some of the craziness that happens inside of these social media platforms? Well, it's a tricky question because I think I indicated earlier when it comes to, I have a stick uh, knee-jerk reaction to government regulation. That said, I think that there are some serious problems with uh, media platforms and the way they're currently operated. I think the biggest challenge, and this is kind of an open platform sort of argument, is that we don't know um, really how these algorithms work. Those algorithms ought to be in the public domain. We know what's going on. And especially uh, as regards privacy, every citizen should know what kind of information stored about me, who's it being shared with, 
how can I correct things that are in it that um, be shared with third party? Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I think getting information as uh, as disputed is a uh, an interesting mechanism. It's always going to be subject to charges of of political bias. And of course, we've seen uh, President Trump making accusations that, uh, you know, Google uh, basically pushes down conservative content. I don't think that that's probably true because it wouldn't be commercial sense for Google to do that. That screws up the rabbit hole. Uh, they want to have uh, uh, good search, good searches for people looking for conservative content. But that's not to say that there aren't problems with the way um, the platforms are operating because they kind of want to both ways. They kind of want to no responsibility for the content, but at the same time, uh, uh, as a public utility, um, they could be regulated. So uh, as uh, electric companies are regulated and their, their rates are scrutinized by government agencies. So the uh, social media platforms have been uh, very simple at the myth of, you know, we're startups uh, and we need to have protection from you know, lawsuits for defamation, uh, libel, and uh, invasion of privacy, because, you know, we're just these little tiny startups. That was true at one point in time, but now you're talking about some of the largest corporations on the planet asking for special compensations because, you know, we're just a startup. And that's that's ancient history. So now I think they need to be held accountable for what they're doing. And I think that's conversation. I don't really have... Um, you know, a 10-step program of, you know, how you fix uh, social media. Um, but I do think start talking about what are their responsibilities? We're going to treat them as a public utility and regulate them. Um, are they going to regulate themselves, which at the very least has to have some kind of how their algorithms work? Part of media literacy would be explaining to people um, the true news categories of news, analysis, and uh, opinion editorial. And if we started flagging news or analysis or opinion at a, I think we'd go a long way towards at least clearing up some of the confusion in an in a opinion editorial piece, op-ed piece that's called in the trade. You're basically trying to persuade a to make an argument. And you're in facts that support your case and you're probably ignoring things that don't support your case. Uh, and that's different than trying to write a news story where you're trying to take the facts of a situation. Let's be honest. Every journalist is going to look at the world through uh, his or her prism. And that's why diversity among journalists is so critical, because every journalist will look at it in their own life experiences. But having said that, every journalist is trying to do the best they can to communicate the facts as they understand them. And if we could develop that kind of literacy where people using social media will go, oh, well, that's an interesting opinion, but that's all it is, uh, as opposed to something that's factual. That involves both the social media platforms as well as the consumers of social media uh, playing a much more active role in identifying the nature of content. Well, it's interesting. I grew up inside of uh, the entertainment business and worked at Disney for a long, long time, inside of which there was a standards and practices division that was making sure the things were showing up on network television inside the news division were actually meeting certain thresholds of standards. It, at least it felt like it seemed like it. And that you know, world, it just feels like it's completely different inside of the wild, wild west that is the social media landscape. And in part, I think the difference that exists between something that maybe was a little more 
prescriptive and ordained, regulated FCC or otherwise that um, just doesn't exist inside of social media has really eroded a bit of the trust that people end up having in journalism generally. And so I'm curious, is there something that the media could do from your perspective to actually regain that trust? Or is this a lost cause? Well, I think it's, it's tricky because President Trump has not been easy on what he called the uh, fake media and, uh, and in the process was, in essence, discrediting anyone that said anything negative about him, which was uh, outside of Fox News and the extreme right, pretty much all of the um, established media, like media, were articulating it, pointing out instances where you were saying something that was factually incorrect. And uh, he took uh, great umbrage at, at, at all that. Um, so when we, we, we start looking at this, as you put it, the wild, wild west, I think that part of that dialogue has to be a conversation with these platforms that says, look, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to be uh, operating as a utility and you're not going to take any responsibility for the content as a public utility, then we're going to put some rules in place that will tell you that, yeah, as a matter of fact, as a public utility, here are some things that you have to do uh, as a minimum. On the other hand, if you want to come up with some kind of self-regulatory structure, then bring it to the table. But part of that's going to full disclosure. You know, your business model, how information is gathered, how it's disseminated, how inaccurate information can be corrected, because I think there's a lot of um, problems with the feedback loop, the opportunity to fix things that are wrong in social media. And uh, that needs to be a possibility of the platforms uh, to fix, fix those kinds of problems. Just understanding a little bit of how information is arriving to you feels like a, a, a basic minimum to, you know, like if you want to accept it as fact after you understand how it arrived to you, that's fine. But at least understand how it's arrived. I mean, like inside the documentary, the idea that the auto-populating answer to climate change is in a geo-filtered world had answers populating in different parts of the country with different finishing sentences. Like, Climate change is real, would show up in certain places that happen to be a little more blue. Climate change is fake, would populate in places where it was a little more red. And I don't know that we as consumers are conscientious of the way that these public utilities, this social media, actually has something inside of the algorithm that's associating where you live and where you probably live, determining somewhat of what you might already believe, feeding you something that maybe reinforces something that you already believe. And if you can understand that, oh, these mechanics exist to keep you inside the rabbit hole, to have you like, you know, doubling and tripling down on something that may be a part of your confirmation bias or the echo chamber that you live inside of. If you can, as a consumer, understand that, that maybe you can pull yourself back and fight against some of the current that is just pushing you into believing a thing that maybe you already believe or reinforcing something that all of the people inside of your neighborhood already believe in a way that creates as much division as already exists, if you don't know the way that the strings are being pulled behind the scenes, then you are just absolutely 100% at their beck and call, moving in the direction that they want you to move in, in a way that helps keep their business models working at the expense of you being informed in a way that's actually balanced, in a way that actually has you maybe creating some kind of empathy for another side to a story that you are believing in. It's not an easy thing, but I'm not sure that 
regulating the social media space is as realistic a thing. I mean, I think that they've done some decent things in trying to highlight, nope, this isn't a verified story or there's credibility issues in this on like Twitter as a for example, but there's just so much in the sharing space that someone can take something from literally anywhere, share to their feed. And if they are, as an individual, a credible source, the people who they are in community with, believe it to be credible because of what they think of that person, not so much of what they think of that writer or that piece of news. And so it ends up being tough unless we can understand a little bit of the ecosystem inside of which we are all mindlessly swimming inside of that is manipulating us to believe certain things against our better instincts. Here's a, a metaphor. If we think of fake news as a virus that's just floating around in, uh, in, in social media, um, one tactic is to try to stamp out the virus or flag the virus. Um, but in my mind, a better strategy is helping our immune system, our, uh, if you will, our political ideological immune system by everybody developing a certain uh, sophistication in terms of media literacy and especially social media literacy. And so what we do is we protect the individual. So it doesn't matter how screwed up social media is or, you know, whether Rachel Meadow is telling a bunch of lies or the commentators on Fox News are telling a bunch of lies. No worries, because we have a population that's immune to that kind of misinformation because they'll listen to something and go, that doesn't sound right. They do a quick uh, Google search, uh, go to one or flag, you know, go to one of the uh, bookmarks for one of their favorite uh, fact check. Oh, that's, that's BS. That's not true. And, and I think that's the ultimate solution is making American citizens empowered to tell the difference. And so whether we fix, you know, Facebook, we fix Twitter or not really isn't as important as do we fix the American citizen or better yet provide the American citizen the tools that they need to be successful at dealing with the uh, fake news virus. So good. So I am the parent of four small humans, the uh, oldest of which at 13 is just starting to slowly in a moderated kind of way tip into the social space. Doesn't have social media accounts yet, but has some fluency literacy in what's happening inside this world. I know there are a lot of listeners who also have young humans. And as much as I, yep, want to try and guard how he steps into this crazy space that is the online world, I'm curious if you have any advice on how to safeguard, prepare, talk to a young adult, a teenager who uh, maybe doesn't have a sense of what it is that they're stepping into before they find themselves inside of the rabbit hole, not actually thinking with their own mind, but now being told what to think by an algorithm that doesn't potentially have their best interest at heart? That's a great question. And there's a a history uh, in, in my discipline of looking at how parents can help children deal with media content for many, many years. The concern was violent media content and what kind of, uh, uh, what kind of modeling is going on when children are exposed to violent content? And the technique that was most successful, and I think it would also apply to social media today, is what's called mediation, which is the idea is that you as a parent have you know, greater credibility than anything in the box. Uh, doesn't feel like it at times. My 
my two daughters are uh, middle-aged now, but when they were the age of your children, it didn't feel like I had a lot of uh, credibility with them. But compared to a television set or uh, a laptop computer, uh, social media, we have a lot of authority. And so rather than trying to keep them away from content, which, by the way, just makes it, uh, uh, you know, makes it a forbidden fruit. Nothing is more attractive than something your parents tell you you shouldn't do. And so what parents can do is first become media literate yourself uh, and social media literate yourself. There's some just Google it. There are some uh, short uh, videos uh, on, on YouTube. You can Google it. There's things you can download in text that uh, will tell you some of the key issues that you need to pay attention to. So you, you become empowered uh, as a parent to say, look, you need to understand how this thing works. You know, uh, the, watching the documentary would be great preparation. Then you sit down with your children, you talk about you know, this, this is what's appearing on your screen. But did you know that somebody, um, you know, in Massachusetts might be getting something completely different when they do a search on that same term? If you're talking about, for instance, a search engine. Oh, just, you no, know, I mean, like, for sure, the social dilemma as a thing to watch and then have a conversation with your kids is the first place that, you know, Rachel and I started with our humans, because right. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's terrifying. Right. I, I will just warn anyone who has not yet watched this documentary. Once you realize everything that's happening behind the scenes, trying to have a conversation or even willingly allowing access to these social networks to your children becomes something that I think you may, in fact, end up debating. Right. But if you decide to, it's hard not to, given how it's just such a proliferated thing, uh, at least have them going in eyes wide open so they understand mm -hmm. what the heck is actually going on here and how to guard and defend themselves from the things that might inevitably end up tipping them, their worldview, their thoughts about themselves or any other thing uh, on, on its head. I have two step-grandchildren um, who are 10 and 5, so they're in the same situation that you're talking about. I think it's uh, it's just fascinating to look at how quickly children absorb stuff. But, you know, it goes back to the idea of the forbidden fruit, that if you basically deal with social media by simply saying, well, I won't give you access to it at all. Um, first of all, they're going to do an in run because it's, as you indicate, it's just so easy to get to. So they're going to figure out how to do an in run and they're going to be fascinated by the idea that you don't want them to see it. So boy, that's got to be really good stuff. And, but, but the challenge is that they're not becoming empowered to deal with the uh, virus of uh, distorted worldviews that um, becomes available to them on social media. What you want to do is, you know, get them buffed up so that they can basically process that information and be aggressive about uh, challenging information. And you can maybe even play games where, you know, you look at something and then uh, ask your child, uh, well, where do you think information came from? To for whose benefit is that point of view? I mean, who, who's the winner and who's the looter, loser if you believe that? Um, again, this would have to be age appropriate. Uh, you do it different ways for different ages of children. But you can get a jump start on what I think high schools and universities ought to be doing, which is teaching media literacy and social media literacy as a, a critical content area that any any educated person needs to have social media literacy uh, if they're going to participate fully in a democracy. Citizen in a democracy uh, requires that you be social media literate.
I could talk to you for the rest of my life. Literally, I love this topic. I love the like just broader conversation around what is journalism and what are facts and how do we, in a world that's so different than it was just 10, 12 years ago, actually find a way to connect to what is real versus what is being spun, what is playing into our confirmation bias and all of the rest. But we're out of time. So uh, I want to let anyone who is interested in understanding more of the work that you do know where they can go, where, if someone wants to know, David, uh, about you, can they follow you on social media or hit a website or anything else that would allow them to live inside your space? Well, I'm a website, daviddosherbooks.com, and the last name is French. Nobody knows how to pronounce it or spell it. So it's David, D-O-Z-I-E-R, books. Com. There's a lot of different kinds of information there, including a study I completed in April that was an investigation of the death penalty and different public attitudes towards it with the, 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 the guts of what uh, the California killing field's all about. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you being here. I'm going to end this episode the way I do every episode, and that is ask if there was a single thing that you could leave this audience with, a takeaway, it could be an idea, a question, an actionable piece of advice. What is the one single thing, hard question, that you would leave with our listeners today? I would just suggest that every listener uh, take advantage of all of the resources that are available to become more social media literate and become more sophisticated consumers of media content. That's awesome. I will do that myself. I have uh, I've been doing it, but I just cannot recommend it enough. This world, we think that good intentions are driving the decision-making of the things that we are consuming. And unfortunately, I can tell you that it's not necessarily true. Commerce, people who are spending money on advertising, the people who want power and they know how to wield it through using ideas to change the way you think, they are the ones that are actually in control Get yourself literate inside of the space so that you actually know what you are consuming and why it is being served to you. David Dozier, thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate you and this time. I want to ask every single listener, if you enjoyed this episode, how could you not have? Take a picture of the episode. Tag me and David on your social media platforms. Tell every single human being you've ever known in your entire life that they ought to listen to this episode today and do yourself the favor of diving into and creating a little more literacy around what the heck social media is, how it works, and how to safeguard yourself and your humans from the disinformation that may show up inside of it. Until next week, I hope you have a fantastic week. Thank you, David. We'll see you on the next episode of Rise Together. Thank you, David. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.